All right, welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the Comcast. We are here with a brand new episode with a very special brand new guest, and I'd like all of you to to meet them. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Jay Eveson Igler. I am an autistic, non-binary, and relatively queer program manager with the Autism and Asperger's Network of New England. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm excited to be here. That's so great. I was so happy that I was able to to interview somebody or a representative from that organization. Um, you guys are doing amazing work and I really appreciate you being here today and taking time out of your schedule. I wanted to sort of ask like specifically, what is AANE doing in sort of the LGBTQ space? So this past month, um, I think we didn't really uh, talk much about it up until our staff meeting and people didn't realize it was Pride Month. But even before that, we were talking about what we wanted to do for specifically transgender autistic people, especially with the current events going on in places like Florida and Texas. But we did recently a bunch of staff trainings and just put out a newsletter that also went over some of the contemporary issues within the LGBTQ community where it intersects with the autism community. AANE has a lot of gender affirming spaces for autistic people and historically has. So we have support groups for forums that are specific to LGBTQ identities. Uh, we have one for gender identity exploration. We have historical had one for gay men. Um, it's also a common topic that we like to talk about in our parenting groups. Uh, we also have resources for couples counseling for LGBTQ couples. We also have the Neurodiverse Couples Institute, which offers uh, training to licensed therapists and social workers on working with autistic individuals who are LGBTQ or otherwise in relationships or who might be struggling with gender identity while in a relationship. Um, so we do a lot of training to inform people on those types of issues. Uh, we are also, like I said, very actively committed to training our staff and empowering staff. We have a very neurodiverse network of staff, and we definitely, from my personal experience, I would definitely say it's a very empowering environment. And we do that because by empowering our staff, we can empower the people that we work with. That is awesome. I really like that that ending note. Like that's something that I really believe in in all of my work that I do here at Calm and also with other nonprofits that I work with. So I work with at-risk youth and juvenile detention centers and sex trafficking survivors, Spark Initiative and Brand in Florida. And something that, you know, always comes up is make sure that like you're uplifting yourself and uplifting those around you and those who work with you. So when we go to the youth and we go and we, we present, you know, our mentoring or um, we do a lot of social emotional learning objectives and we go and do those things that were strong in ourselves and in our beliefs. So it doesn't reflect poorly on the, on the youth. So yeah, I really like that, that that's something that you guys really focus on. That's really important. Something, you know, that I like to explore a lot in, in my work specifically is the interaction between mental health and being an LGBTQ person and how that can sort of create new experiences and how it might impact treatment, because sometimes it can look different depending on what you've been through in the past. So things like discrimination, um, familial rejection, um, being rejected from your friends, internalized homophobia. There's a lot of different things that can sort of come about as an LGBTQ person that can impact your mental health that maybe wouldn't have been as impacted if, if you were not in that community. What would you say, like, how does having um, autism or being neurodivergent and being an LGBTQ person impact mental health? Uh, there's a lot of different ways that it will impact 
your mental health. Definitely using the minority stress model. You're already in a community with the autism diagnosis or being neurodivergent. You would be in a community in which you're already kind of being ostracized by the society in general. You might have barriers to access to college, even secondary and uh, elementary education. You probably have been exposed to several traumatizing factors. There's a quote somebody mentioned to me the other day is that our society doesn't produce non-traumatized autistic people. In general, autistic people are already much more likely to experience mental health challenges such as anxiety. That's regardless of what their gender identity or sexual identity are. Uh, they're much more likely to experience depression. Eating disorders are also very common, sometimes due to food aversions, um, but sometimes also due to body dysphoria. Post-traumatic stress disorder is extremely common with individuals on the spectrum. In one study that was done in 2020, um, clinically significant depression was actually found in more than one-third of autistic participants across all age bands. And they had a relatively high you know, population that they were looking at, or group that they were looking at. It was 1,270-something-odd people. So it's it's pretty significant. Uh, we also face higher rates of suicidality than the general population. And when you combine that with the fact that we are also much more likely to identify as LGBTQ, um, we're much more likely to experience gender dysphoria, and the fact that autism really doesn't discriminate, you can be um, Black and autistic um, or have some other form of marginalized identity and be autistic. Um, those are just compounding factors because those communities also have high rates of anxiety, depression, and stress um, and trauma. So it kind of of just comes all together based on different societal factors. Um, I would say certainly also due to the way we are treated and ostracized by society. But I would also say it's in part due to some of the challenges that we face internally as well. I know that based on my research and, and doing it and, and, you know, obviously as being an LGBTQ person with, with mental health struggles, you know, I've struggled with persistent depressive disorder. I have OCD. Um, I've dealt with anorexia nervosa in the past. So definitely there's a lot of different things that, that can come across in that space. And especially something that you had mentioned earlier is um, the transgender portion of this community I have found is just exponentially experiences worth worse mental health across the board for, you know, whether you're a person of color whether you have some sort of disability, once you add that sort of layer of also being a transgender person, it can sort of just exacerbate everything. And that's sort of what we're just seeing in the research and the literature, but what specific disparities would you say that LGBTQ people with autism or Asperger's or who are neurodivergent, you know, how would you describe some of the specific disparities? So there's a lot of very specific disparities that I think people who are autistic and transgender or otherwise LGBTQ face. Um, currently, one of the big ones that I've been really looking into is that autistic people are much more likely to receive gender-affirming care, even from gender-affirming spaces or doctors. Um, and in part, I would definitely say that comes from this misunderstanding of how we as autistic people experience identity and um, how we also experience empathy. Um, one of the many ways that has been used to kind of justify this is, and now not necessarily defunct theory, but certainly one that has garnered more criticism recently is this theory of mind um, and that autistic people supposedly lack this theory of mind. And um, what that means is that we might have a harder time placing ourselves in another person's shoes or seeing things from their perspective. And that has been used to essentially deny care to autistic transgender people. But there's a for, there's a wide variety of other disparities that we face that also overlap 
with other aspects of LGBTQ identity, such as difficulty finding employment. That's a pretty big one in terms of like mental health disparities. There's a lot issue with people getting support from therapists. Almost uh, 35.7% in one study said that they had been denied service by a medical or mental health care provider purely due to their autism diagnosis. So there's a wide variety there. There's also the fact that we struggle with uh, housing. That's a large one. We're also less likely to have received sexual education as uh, adolescents, so we are much more likely to experience uh, sexual abuse as well, which can negatively impact our mental health. One of the big disparities that I would definitely say exists for individuals who might have been diagnosed earlier or who have some higher degree of support needs is that we tend to not get this type of support within those spaces. So one of the uh, very focal points that self-advocates make is that some of the therapies that we are exposed to, if we're diagnosed much earlier in life, um, have a degree to which they strip us of our agency and autonomy and are very similar to conversion therapy. It's behavioral interventions that we now know, um, there's been some research to establish this, do cause to some extent post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and then finding adequate care to help with that post-traumatic stress disorder afterwards can be a challenge because of the lack of autism-informed and LGBTQ-informed mental health care providers. And it does make certain populations much more at risk for sexual abuse. We're also uh, less likely to find affirming communities. One of the things that about the queer community that's so great is that we're always able to find each other. But for autistic people, that can sometimes be a challenge, especially if we have a higher care, uh, higher degree of needs. We might also not be given the tools to talk about our gender identity or sexual identity. Um, so that sometimes is something that restricts us in finding that community as well. One prominent aspect is if somebody is nonverbal and they use, for instance, a, it's called an augmented communication device, alternative communication device, they might not have the buttons or applicable options on their device that is usually put there in place uh, by speech pathologist or other specialist to necessarily express the way that they want to dress or the way that they want to identify. And if they do have, you know, let's say somebody asks them, well, how do you identify? Um, are you a boy or a girl? They'll ch they don't have the option for non-binary typically, but they might choose girl when they've been assigned male at birth. And instead of exploring that, many care providers will just simply dismiss it as in, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a boy, silly. That's sort of one of those issues that comes up. So there's a wide variety that you might face if you, a wide variety of issues that you might face if you are at that intersection in the realms of housing, communication, community, mental health care access. Yeah, a lot of that seems to, when you, when we start talking about housing and, and uh, health care and all of that discrimination, you know, a big part of it, especially in healthcare and 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 in government, a big part of it is just this lack of of research and this lack of innovation or openness to change those systems. Something that I say a lot is we talk about, you know, making that sort of change, you know, implementing the changes that you're talking about, fixing these systems. And a lot of times people see that as a really big, expansive, you know, decades change. And I'm like, or we could just, in you know, in the case of a communication device, add a button. Or, you know, in the case of a doctor's office, 
add an area to a form where people can self-identify or add an area to a form where they can be like, you know, I've experienced sexual trauma in the past. Can you not, you know, touch me randomly? Like just these little, little tiny things that are really easy to do across the board that can make a lot of change, but people are adverse to that. And a lot of it can stem from just, you know, this is the way things have always been kind of a a mental mentality. Other times, depending on the provider or depending on the institution, can be related back to just societal discrimination, religious affiliation, what have you, especially in the LGBTQ community, religious affiliation can be a big problem when when you come into the healthcare space. What would you say, and, you know, talking about social inequality, meaning, you know, ranging from religion and education and all of those things, you know, in terms of that, what sort of social inequalities do people um, that are neurodivergent and are LGBTQ, you know, what are those social inequalities that they may experience? Yeah. So one example I can think of is that socially, um, is particularly for people that are diagnosed much later with autism or who find out and self-identify as autistic much later, they frequently have that diagnosis or identity um, questioned by family members. But if they happen to exist at that intersection, a lot of times the autistic identity will be affirmed only to deny affirmation of the LGBTQ specific identity. And that can be one type of social inequality that they might face within their homes and within their religious institutions as well. I would say that there's other aspects too. Um, Socially, we also, as disabled people, depending on your level of care or depending on whether or not you can work, you might still experience marriage inequality because you are unable to achieve a certain level of income or have a certain level of a uh, certain level of assets before you are kicked off of your social security income, for instance. We're also much more likely to be given some minimum wage, which is currently, I believe, set at $4.25 an hour. And that can look like somebody who works at a sheltered workshop through a work center being given these subminimum wages and not being able to really have any autonomy or agency in their life because they don't make enough money. Um, I would say like In terms of just social inequality as well, societally, we tend to be more ostracized. Um, So if you combine that with a LGBTQ identity, for instance, it's going to be much harder to find work. We also in our school systems are very regimented and regulated as well. Yeah, that's something that I definitely noticed. I in in a middle school, I was placed into um, the gifted program because they just were like, she's not like, she's performing well in, in these classes and, and, you know, they're getting good grades, but something not meshing well, not really being able to engage on the same level. So they put me in, in the, in the gifted class. And I was grateful for that resource. And I was talking to people and, you know, in other States and, and, and even other countries um, that I work with and, and talk to them about that. And some people are like, you know, what is the gifted program? And that's not, ex- that's not really specific to, to autism or LGBTQ people, but it's just a resource for people who, who think differently or um, who go about their, their processes differently. And there's really just not a whole lot of that. Like it surprised me, you know, hearing that, you know, when you're sort of a kid, you, you, or in this little bubble that everything in your world is the same everywhere else when it's not. So there's, you know, a lot of resources that need to be had and need to be implemented. And, you know, in your opinion, what are some of those resources? I do think, like we had mentioned, I think this LGBTQ specific language needs to be added to um, a lot of the devices that people get, for instance, but I think in general, just training, any type of training that is focused on any aspect of life, 
uh, should include some degree of like, well, how is this going to impact autistic people? If you're receiving any type of LGBTQ training, especially, I feel like that should be something that is very prominent within that program. Autistic people are much more likely to identify as LGBTQ. They were really overrepresented in the autism, or sorry, not in the autism, but in the um, LGBTQ identity. So it's something that I feel like if you have some sort of LGBTQ specialty, you should be trained also in recognizing and working with autistic people. Um, But more than that, I think what really needs to happen at a systemic level is that people just need to listen to people that have this lived experience. Um, That's one of the things that I think a lot of people have advocated for is this nothing about us without us type of mentality where autistic people are constantly shut out of our of policy changes that affect us and more precedent is given to our family members, for instance, which has historically also been the case for LGBTQ people. And I think just from that perspective alone, um, we could probably certainly clear up a lot of miscommunications, but I think definitely implementing some sort of policy changes and going about and making sure people have the tools to work with this population more than they already do would be effective. Yeah, I did a podcast um, with a, a therapist that I know personally a while back. And a question that I had asked is like, so, you know, when you went to school for, for you know, therapy, I said when you went to therapy school, because my mind wasn't working at the time, I meant <laughs> university. But I was like, when you went to therapy school, you know, did they have any, at least a seminar, at least a speaker to talk about some of these issues to, you know, train physician, physician, I can't speak. I'm not going to say, I can't say that word. So I'm not going to, um, train the students, you know, in this area or give them any sort of support. And she was like, no, not really. And I was like, and then uh, like going back even further before I talked to, to her, I talked to Dr. Gary Howell, who's, um, an LGBTQ psychiatrist here in, in Tampa. And there are things like that in universities now, which is hope, which is, you know, hopeful, and um, he goes and he he speaks into support groups and things like that. But, you know, I feel like that is sort of an, an optional thing that that individuals go into universities and, and present, you know, hey, I'd like to do this training with your students or, hey, I'd like to add this to the program as a professor. And then, you know, even just looking at the the guidelines by the American Psychiatric Association, they have LGBTQ best practices, but if you read the fine print, they're suggested, they're not required. And the physicians, oh, I said it, the physicians and the doctors can do it at their own discretion. So I think that like, in my opinion, those things like the suggestions and these one-off seminars, I'm like, no, these need to be completely and fully implemented (laughs) in a requirement. Like, what are you talking about? So yeah, I I completely agree with you. Yeah, we have... um... just thinking about it now like in college we don't get trained for this like we don't we aren't specifically taught how to work with specific populations and things like that you know I talked about it a lot in my classes because I have um, a huge depth of knowledge in this area this is you know kind of where I've hyper focused my entire life but just even speaking on my own experience that was never the case when I was at college either you don't get trained in how to work with autistic populations a lot of the tools and materials that you're given in these fields aren't applicable to autistic populations. Um, therapies that you would typically see for people that have depression or anxiety or things like that typically don't really apply. Mindfulness can be a huge struggle for autistic people, but it's implemented in so many therapies nowadays that it essentially renders the therapy um, without accommodation pointless 
for um, autistic individuals. So that can be one major mental health challenge that definitely affects um, autistic people. And really all it is is a matter of figuring out what accommodations need to be made in therapy for that. And that's if you get to a therapist, um, speaking also from personal experience, it can be really hard to find one that is informed on LGBTQ issues and autism. I actually very recently, um, I went to a therapist after searching for six months and I was literally looking for somebody who was informed about like antenatal and postpartum care uh, because I'm pregnant and I was like okay well I'll find somebody who is informed about that and informed about LGBTQ issues um, and hopefully informed at least about ADHD um, and autism. And I found someone who fit most of those boxes, but the moment I gave them my testing um, to show them like, hey, this is how I function. Can we accommodate the therapy this way um, in these ways? She didn't fully comprehend how the testing had gone and function and some of the language within the testing and had essentially told me that she couldn't provide care as a result of that. And this was after six months of looking for a therapist. So um, I had to go and find another therapist. And that's another issue that comes up too, is um, a lot of people aren't trained in how to recognize autism in adults through testing. There is no such thing necessarily as adult cell, uh, as adult scaled testing for autism diagnoses, and especially women and non-binary people, we tend to be very commonly misdiagnosed with uh, personality disorders, including cluster B personality disorders, which makes access to care extremely hard. And even if it's not at the end in your diagnostic paperwork, it doesn't say this person was diagnosed with this. If somebody were to go through your testing and were to see oh, this person scored really highly on the MMPI, which is a personality inventory for psychosis, they wouldn't necessarily know to understand, oh, that can sometimes be an indication of autism. So, you know, you don't learn these things from the ground up. It's going to cause issues with access to care later on. Yeah. I mean, I can speak from my own personal experience, just, you know, talking from more of the LGBTQ side of that, there's can be a lot of you know issues in finding a therapist because if you don't ask the right questions and then you go into a session and you know it turns out that you know maybe a lot of your issues are you rejected you were rejected by your family because you were you know lesbian or, or gay and you go in and you start explaining that and it turns out that they you know don't deal with that or they're discriminatory and then you're like well now I go find another one and I have to pay for the session so you know it's also important you know asking the right questions before you go which you know clearly you know you do and that's really admirable and but a lot of people don't even realize that you should probably be asking these questions before you go in you know um, insurance coverage or availability sadly isn't always the the number one factor when trying to find a therapist it's a lot of compatibility and especially with, with treatments, um, transgender individuals can really struggle with that. I was in a residential hospital for an eating disorder and it was an all women's facility. One of the people that I met there was a trans male. So a lot of the things that we focused on were focused on, you know, how to treat women with eating disorders, focusing on body image from the point of view of a woman, Oliver was a man. And, you know, yep, just figuring out how to accommodate that that's something so simple that people can do that oftentimes people aren't willing to do. And it can mean a world of difference when it comes to therapy. Especially when you go to therapy a lot of times just to be heard. My experience too, um, so for full context of background, I am bisexual and polyamorous. And, you know, finding a therapist who is informed on 
gender diverse issues, polyamory and um, autism and also bisexuality can be very, very difficult. There's also all kinds of barriers to care. I've had friends who are within this very intersecting community tell me they've been to therapists and have struggled to get care because their therapist didn't understand polyamory or because their therapist wanted to focus on their gender identity when they were there for something that didn't, you know, they weren't comfortable with their gender identity and were there for something completely separate. And um, that can be very difficult to deal with. Something that I always try and tell people, right, is, you know, to ask those questions and to, to do your research but that can, especially for, for someone who, you know, works a full-time job or goes to school or has kids, that can be very, very time consuming. Um, something that I, I, I dedicate a lot of time to is pulling together and spending my own time pulling together those resources. And we have like a huge section on, on the website that's just like completely dedicated to resources so people don't have to go hunt them down. But something that I, I've kind of struggled to find to put on there is something like a, a database that shows like that's something that I thought about working on for myself is like being able to search for a therapist in your area that meets bam, 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 requirements. And we know meets those requirements. So, you know, they are LGBTQ inclusive. They are knowledgeable on, um, you know, how to make those accommodations. They have, are of a Christian background or of not a Christian background, you know, all of these different um, requirements. I just haven't found a single resource like that. It's more like, well, here's this database there and this database there. And it's very time consuming. And for people who don't have a lot of time on their hands, or for people who, you know, don't have internet access or can't use a computer, you know, that can definitely be a challenge. So there's a lot of things that need to be done on a accommodation scale and uh, just sort of ex accessing those resources to know where you can get those things. Um, and one thing that AANE that we have done also is we do have a database that we can go through to find individuals that have worked with us in the past, professionals that are informed about transgender and other LGBTQ issues that are familiar with autism as well. Is that so. like something that you guys use internally? It oftentimes is, but uh, when people are looking for resources and they're part of our, uh, one of our many programs that we have offering, I like we have LifeMap and LifeNet, which are both sort of coaching programs to an extent. We oftentimes can help individuals look for providers or other resources from that internal network. Well, that's really, I'm really like happy that you guys have that. That's probably like, that's definitely super helpful. Something more specific, like what you said would definitely be more helpful. I think, um, you know, same way I've, I found care for, you know, my other depth of interest, which is guinea pigs. I've been able to find resources like that through networks like that. And sadly, you don't really find that for individuals besides maybe psychology today, which doesn't always necessarily have the best providers on there or doesn't necessarily tell you everything about the provider. And even just asking questions, sometimes you don't get the full picture. You know, a provider might say that they're LGBTQ informed, but then you get into the session and they're really not, or they might say that they have, that they treat and see people that have ADHD or are autistic and they might not have that background necessary to fully treat them. Yeah, definitely a resource that like has people who are confirmed who actually know these things. Like you could say, yeah, I'm informed on LGBTQ issues. And then you're like, okay, can you describe you know, your education on that. And then you'd be like, well, I can define the terms. I'm like, okay, that doesn't really count. <laughs> like, that's not what yeah. we're talking about. Pretty sure a lot of people could, I could define the terms, but I am not a psychologist. So yeah, definitely something that is, is concrete. I know I've used psychology today just for different 
purposes in my work. And sometimes, you know, another issue with the like online resources is things being outdated or broken links. It's just like, that's a whole completely different conversation. That's sort of off topic, but oh, it's just one of my number one pet peeves. It's like, can you just keep it updated? Like minimum request. So, you know, there's a lot of obvious issues, but you know, there's also a lot of resources and there's also a lot of advice to be given, but we have a lot of um, youth who listen to the podcast. And if you could sort of say something to, to the people and, and especially the youth who are, who are listening right now, um, do you have any advice or just any words of encouragement? Yeah. um, First and foremost, you are not broken. Your identity is extremely valid. If you are autistic and you identify as LGBTQ, it's not because of any other purpose other than you were just simply born that way. That's the way you were made. And there is hope out there. There's a lot of resources out there for people like you. And there's a lot of people willing to support people like you. And I think especially if you're an adolescent um, from personal experience, struggling with your mental health while also struggling with all of these aspects of society that are telling you so many negative things and creating all these barriers for you. There are resources there and they do honestly can get better. Adolescence is hard (laughs) and simply being able to exist as you are is important. Yeah. And you deserve that. That was really beautiful. Thank you for that. Just to touch on some other resources that might be available, especially to youth. Of course, A&E, we have a lot of resources. The Autistic Self-Advocacy Network or ASAN um, has a lot of resources for Um, autistic self-advocates, particularly college students. The Autistic Women's and Non-Binary Network has a lot of resources for individuals who identify as non-binary, for parents who are questioning sort of anything related to their child's identity, but also maybe their identity as an autistic person and their neurodiversity. Uh, I would recommend PFLAG. The Trevor Project has also done quite a bit on this topic and they have a lot of resources for autistic youth. Intersex autistic people can also look at Interact, which is a program specifically for autistic, or uh, not autistic youth, but for intersex youth specifically. And if you're ever interested in learning more about your legal rights, you can always go to the Transgender Law Center or the National Center for Transgender Equality. I do want to definitely um, emphasize that you need to know your rights and, and, you know, know what you are entitled to because people will try and slip that under the rug, especially in, in healthcare or schooling or especially housing, you like that is so important. So I definitely encourage all of you to go check all of those resources out. I smiled when you said PFLAG because actually just a couple of days ago, one of the bigger, what is it like subdivisions of, of PFLAG, PFLAG Riverview here in Florida did their youth pride prom that I went to and that was really fun. And I would encourage you all to definitely check out PFLAG and A&E as well. Um, they're all amazing organizations that are here to help you at the end of the day. So there's no reason why you shouldn't check them out. And sort of on that, is there any, you know, can they follow the organization on, on Instagram or Facebook or any social media? Yeah. So we do have a variety of social media. If you just look up A&E, you can pretty much find us on anything. Um, and our website is A-A-N-E at dot org. 
so not at it's aane.org from there you can find we have uh, several pages for lgbtq resources we also have like i said several support groups that you can join yeah and if you guys want to access any other as much as the databases i've collected um, you can go to www.thecomblog.com resources to go check those out we also have a blog we've written on the topic that we're discussing which is just at the main page that you can also check out we update the blogs weekly and we're here weekly on the podcast. And a fun fact <laughs> that I really like to highlight is I do enjoy having people who are established and people who are very knowledgeable, but I also want to hear directly from the youth and hear directly what your experiences are. And you don't have to have any qualifications other than being yourself to come on and, and sort of just have a nice discussion and have your voice uplifted. So you can definitely check that out as well. You can also follow us on Instagram. And I say this in every single episode because I just, I have such disdain for the Instagram handle. <laughs> it is at the dot com dot blog. There are two dots in between com um, because someone already took com blog, which I am immensely disappointed in, but it's there and you can find us on Instagram. So I just wanted to thank everyone for listening and obviously Thank you for, for being here today and special shout out to Humanity Rising, who is our partner and they do a lot of amazing things for youth and anti-bullying and LGBTQ and just a lot of different issues. So big shout out to them as well. Um, any closing thoughts? Absolutely. Um, thank you for having me here. Um, thank you for giving me the chance to talk about this topic that I've been very invested in. Um, and thank you for talking more about this topic. Many people really do not understand or know that how common it is for autistic people to have these other mental health issues, but also how common it is to be LGBTQ and autistic. And um, the very, very, wouldn't say special, but the very unique challenges that we face with mental health and barriers to mental health as a result. My whole thing that I do here is, is any topic that relates to this and any community that, you know, doesn't get talked about enough. It's one of the most frustrating things in my life to, for people to just not talk. So that's what I'm here for, but thank you. And for everyone who's listening, thank you for making it all the way here. And remember to get your service learning hours for listening to the podcast. That is all we have today. Um, so we'll sign off now. Bye, guys. Bye.